You're listening to a press conference from the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health with Michael Minna, Assistant Professor of Epidemiology. This call was recorded at 11.30 a.m. Eastern Time on Friday, April 3rd. Just to, for anyone I haven't spoken to before, um, I'm an Assistant Professor of Epidemiology and also of uh, Immunology and Infectious Diseases at the School of Public Health. I'm also one of the medical directors at Brigham and Women's Hospital, where I oversee uh, parts of the uh, viral diagnostics lab, in particular the molecular viral diagnostics lab uh, for clinical care. And so that's that sort of puts me uh, square in the middle of diagnosing coronavirus in patients uh, in terms of the, the laboratory side of things. And uh, I'm also uh, separate from Brigham and Women's Hospital. I've also been working hard at uh, the Broad Institute to uh, work with their team there to get high throughput testing uh, available to Massachusetts, and that's now running. And so uh, these, so I think I can speak to, to both sides, both the testing has sort of been more where my, where my mind has been uh, in the last few weeks, uh, and, and, uh, but also I can certainly speak towards the epidemiology and, and have a slightly different bend in my thinking because of my clinical hat than some of my peers. So I'm, uh, I'm happy to just take questions. All right, our first question. Um, hi, th thanks for doing this. Um, I just wanted to ask on the testing, um, I guess if we're talking about reopening, starting to reopen some things, easing up on social distancing, you know, what level of, how much more do we need to increase our testing to be able to get to that point? Um, it seems like, unless I'm wrong, the latest I numbers saw were like 100,000 tests a day right now, which seems pretty good but are there underlying issues still of like a backlog or supplies that are sort of making those numbers misleading? Or I guess just where, where do we need to get our, our testing to be able to start reopening things? Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. The, I, I think the, the answer to that question is more related to sort of the, the unknowns right now about what this virus is doing, in my opinion. And um, we really don't know if the virus has infected less than 1% of the population at this point or 15% of the population. Uh, and of course, if it's infected 15% of the population, then despite having huge amounts of, of hospital admissions and death, we, we are also dealing with a virus that's less, uh, less virulent and pathogenic than we are currently thinking. Um, and if it's still less than 1% of the population, then we're a long way off from gaining herd immunity and it is a severe infection and we have to do pretty intense surveillance to be able to open anything up. So I think what we actually need to do first before we can kind of even figure out how much testing is really needed is we need to know what order of magnitude we're in uh, in terms of the spread of this virus. And that's where I think the, this next phase, which I, I've been seeing more and more in the media and it's certainly lining up with what we're doing in, in the actual clinical sphere is moving to serology and getting, getting exposure histories of people to know just how many people in a population have actually been infected versus just, you know, we can, we can continue testing and really drive up testing to get virus. And I think that that might be needed if we're on the track where this has not infected a huge proportion of the population and it's, and it's, really, um, and it's really quite a virulent virus, we're going to have to, in the future, be, be doing intense surveillance for the virus and people's uh, nasal secretions. 
And, and that might be a place where we're at. And if, if that is where we're going, then 100,000 tests a day isn't close to what we need. 100,000 tests a day would essentially take six months to get 5% of the population tested. And what we have to bear in mind is that many people are going to be requiring multiple tests. The vast majority of people that get a test are going to be negative. But without having the serology, we won't know anything about whether they have already been positive and we missed the window or they're going to be positive tomorrow. So I think it's very important to keep that in mind that when we're making these calculations, we have to fold into it um, the, the numbers of repeat tests, which is going to be most people, ideally, if we were using this for a, an intense surveillance program. I don't know how likely it is. Without, I, I think what we're going to see is a big change in technology over the next couple of months, where instead of doing everything by PCR, we're going to have all of these antigen rapid diagnostic tests, they're kind of the pregnancy model of test. And those I think are what will be able to be um, deployed much more widely, potentially to, to the tune of somebody being able to order a pack of 10 and, and use one every week. And that is maybe the, the model that we would have to go with if we try to actually control this virus through testing for virus itself. Um, I think there's other, we're obviously seeing right now that there's other ways to control the virus without testing, um, but it's highly detrimental to the economy and to our lifestyles um, and pulls up the social fabric of society, frankly. So we don't, we obviously can't just keep social distancing, um, but this is at least a, what we can do at the moment, given the lack of testing, social distancing is essentially what we would be doing if we knew what the test results were for, for each person, uh, we would be having them individually social distance, which would be better. But at the moment, we're kind of stuck in, in this rut that we're in. Yeah, that makes sense. If I can just ask one more, I mean, do you think we're on, um, is there something that the, the Trump administration needs to be doing more to get us on that path towards serology testing or towards more testing? I mean, or do we feel, do you feel like we're on that path or, or do they need to be doing something different? I think at this point, um, everyone knows that serology is needed. So if we go back a couple of months, uh, when I was talking with some of the big, the manufacturers of the, the, the tests that are for viruses, some of these larger manufacturers and the tests we've heard about in the news, there was still a lot of question about whether or not viral tests were going to be useful for this virus, whether they were going to be needed in the United States. And that's where I think that the the message from the White House um, and from the national government could have been um, much better and, and more, more accurate early on to tell companies to, yes, these are going to be needed. At this point, I think that all companies who have the capacity to build these serological tests are doing so as fast as they can. Um, whether, whether the Congress can appropriate funds to sort of push them into the private sector to, to really be able to ramp up um, serological tests even more and get the R&D developed further. I don't know what at what capacity these companies are currently working at, but I do know that most of the big ones that do produce serological tests are, are working hard. Whether or not um, our president, you know, steps in, I, I think that, that uh, we're going to see them developing it. What I'm worried about, though, is that we're going to run into the exact same problems that we're running into with um, with the, the viral testing and the moment Diasorin or Abbott comes out with a serological assay, the reagent supply is going to be limited. 
and um, and that will potentially become a huge bottleneck to testing. So we have other we have private organ uh, smaller organizations and academic labs all trying to develop um, immunoglobulin assays as well or antibody tests as well, and uh, and I think. It's hard to it's hard to know exactly what role the, the White House should be having in this one because everyone at this point is is sufficiently knowledgeable to know that this is a crucial need. Thanks. Uh, the next question. Yeah, hi. Thanks for doing this. And I was wondering if you could just talk a little bit about kind of the range of kinds of serological tests we're going to be seeing and if there are going to be any differences in what they can tell us about how strong different people's immunity is, um, and then if, the, if different kinds of tests will be more or less useful across different segments of the population, so either people who've had symptoms or people who, you know, have had no contact with other exposed people. Thanks. So I, um, I think that um, the, the types of serological tests that are coming out, there's going to be, it's going to be kind of analogous to what we've been seeing happen. Um, uh, with the viral testing, where we're going to have these point of care tests and we're going to have laboratory tests, and it's essentially going to reflect what we already see at the population level. Um, I mean, at, at, in the in the status quo right now for serological tests that are used clinically. Um, so we will see uh, first and foremost, we'll see these ELISA-based tests, and these are sort of tests that are done in the in the laboratory, and these are going to start probably with um, population screening, is my guess. And we really need to know population levels of immunity at the moment to understand the trajectory we're on as a as a globe. And and to to date, there's really not a good serological study that's been done. And uh, so, but these are going to be these tests that are done in a laboratory, sort of in on plates, and the samples have to get shipped to them. But pretty soon after that, um, we'll start seeing uh, those same kinds of tests be introduced as a true clinical diag not not a diagnostic. I want to make that clear that these are not diagnostic tools. Um, but as a, as a clinical um, decision-making tool, it will be a data point for physicians and, and others to be able to use, both to take people off protective measures um, in the hospital and to let people know that their serostatus can, can indicate anyway whether they've been infected. It does not necessarily indicate if, they've been, if they are immune and can't get the infection again. That's going to take more, um, more rigorous um, evaluation in, in controlled studies, not necessarily controlled studies, but um, in terms of infections, but, but really monitoring people in a careful way using good epidemiologic tools. And, and then we'll also see these sort of rapid tests come, come about, and those might be, become the most useful for distributing. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing them sold at CVS and things like that. Um, and they should be the most helpful to help uh, just the everyday individual out of the healthcare system know their status and and be able to have some idea of, of where they um, where they've been in terms of their infections. If they still see I so there's two different antibodies that we'd also look for. Um, IgM is something that comes up very quickly after infection, and IgG is something that comes up a little bit later, usually a couple weeks later, and uh, and sticks around potentially for life. Um, so it's a good if you can get a test that accurately measures IgG specific to this virus and not to other viruses, then it can work as sort of a record of your immune system going back potentially years. And it works, it allows us to quickly be able to get cumulative case counts of what has happened in the past. Coupling that to IgM gives us some um, idea of whether or not 
we are still in the midst of, a, of an epidemic. If you get 3% of, of the people that you've been testing or 4% of the people that you're testing, for example, with IgM, then, uh, then you know that you're still in the midst of an outbreak um, or an epidemic. But if everyone just says IgG, then you can be pretty sure that the outbreak has passed. Thank you, that's, that's helpful, thank you. Uh, the next question. The disease detectors, the people who do who track down oh. the contacts, how important are they in tracking and slowing down the progress of COVID-19? And secondly, do they have a greater chance of success in rural states such as Vermont or Maine than they would do in Massachusetts? Got it. So the, the people, yeah. So, so the question is, do they have a better chance of success in, in being able to contact trace and really and, and follow the path of an epidemic in a rural versus a metropolitan area? Yes, and also how important are they generally in terms of trying to slow down the progress of COVID-19? Yeah, so, so I mean, d disease detectives, I guess I would consider myself a disease detective um, in many ways, but then there's the Epidemic Intelligence Service, which comes from the CDC, and that's a, a terrific cohort of people who, um, who work on, on contact tracing or get deployed quickly during new outbreaks, I would say that they become increasingly less individual um, disease detectives doing contact tracing become increasingly less important as the incidence or prevalence of a disease ramps up, and and that's because that's essentially gets at the whole question of you know what's the what's the importance of contact tracing every person at the beginning of an outbreak? It's absolutely essential. Um, maybe you can actually prevent that outbreak from spreading at all. Uh, if you can quarantine and capture everyone who's had it. So those are that's when disease detectives who are doing the contact tracing are, are just immensely important. Uh, and, and that is one way to control the infection. But at the time, by the time you get an infection transmitting like it is uh, in the United States and elsewhere across the globe, at this point, each individual person and their contacts becomes, uh, you really have diminishing returns. And the amount of effort that would go into tracking any one individual and their contacts at this point would be, um, would be immense relative to the gains, uh, except in places that are extremely high risk for uh, mortality or severe disease, places like, um, places like nursing homes and hospitals, where we really do want to ensure that we're tracking every single person that we can who might have an infection or be exposed and get them uh, to stay away from vulnerable patients or keep infected patients away from others. So I, I think that in general, the, that the, the time, the window of time when disease detectives and contact tracing was most impactful has now passed. But I th what we're going to see is once we we're kind of in the process of trying to smash this epidemic down, not just like flatten the curve, but really try to suppress it almost entirely with the idea that we can reset and start over. And at that point, I think we'll see disease detectives and contact tracing become increasingly important again. Uh, and it will require a huge amount of resources and, and additional staff to really do that as we start to sort of reopen the economy and allow people to start moving back into their jobs we're going to have to be doing pretty intense monitoring uh, of, of, uh, of populations. And that's where I think we'll start to see 
um, the, the, the crucial need for each of those contexts to be traced um, again in the future. Um, my other point, um, are they, do they have a greater chance of success in, in rural states, such as Vermont, for example, where they've got a team of about 60? Yeah, I, th I think generally, if, if you can put more, if the ratio of, of people who are available to, uh, to work uh, on, on these questions is if the, the ratio of those to the populace is higher, then I think that that's generally good. And in, in, a, in a rural area, we would anticipate that the virus will spread more slowly and provide and be potentially in more, more discrete pockets. So you might have a small town or you know, a, a family in, in rural Vermont or rural Ohio or wherever it might be, um, you, at that point, I, I think that it's a little bit easier to attempt to trace sort of the, the, the family units and the, and the social units versus in a place like New York City where one, in, one infected individual can go and in, infect a, a large number of people if they get on the subway, for example, and, and you'd never be able to trace those individuals. So I do think the successes would be potentially greater in a in a rural area. There's other logistical challenges being in a rural area, but slightly separate. Okay, that's great. Thank you very much. Hi, the next question. What is the ideal rate for public health official, officials to know or feel reasonably certain about the number of people affected in a community and to develop effective interventions? People have brought up South Korea, which has tested one out of every 200 people. Is that the ideal rate? If not, what is the ideal rate? How many people should we be testing per capita? Yeah, it's a great question. So in South Korea, if we really look at what they actually did, so it might have been one in 200 across the country, but what they, um, what they, what we should really focus on there is how many people um, during the during the course of the out of the major um, outbreak that they had, which was really centered in Daegu. Um, just, I don't know, I think it's a couple hours south of Seoul. Um, they, uh, they actually tested around 5% of that population in, in around 25 days, which is a huge number of people. That would be hundreds of thousands of tests per day in the U.S. or more. Um, maybe 500, I have to do the math. But, but, um, but so they tested about 5% in 25 days, and that seemed to be effective. Whether the, I don't know though that we should all I, I've I've been um, supportive of that type of model where we where we where we test sort of a large fraction of the population, but you can do it in more sophisticated ways as well, uh, with some good epidemiological expertise and study design. You can actually figure out what's the minimum number of people to really uh, that really should be tested to to know sort of what what the outbreak is doing and, and including trying to make sure that you have representative populations uh, included. And the, the key thing is to, to know what sort of tests we're talking about. If it's, if it's serology, then you generally need fewer people uh, to a certain extent because individuals will accumulate. If it's, if, it's a, if it's a viral test, then you might need pretty large numbers um, to get above just a couple of people who might be positive at any given time. And, and so I would say that it's, it's not necessarily a proportion of the population that we're really trying to get at as much as um, setting up surveillance systems appropriately to know, um, to know just sort of how, uh, how to study it. But I think the, the problem that I'm having with answering the question is we don't know 
we can't do a sample size calculation at this point in time to know what the what the proper number is until we actually have some better idea of what the virus is doing. And I can't stress that enough. We still don't know if this virus has infected, say, 300,000 Americans or, or 15 million Americans. And, and those are pretty distinct numbers. And, uh, and until we really understand that difference, uh, it's very, very difficult to know just how many people we need to be testing. In the healthcare system, it's a little different. Um, but there we're really doing targeted testing for control measures. And that's not just purely surveillance. That's really knowing who needs to be on precautions, who doesn't, who needs to stay out of the hospital, who doesn't. And, and there we're seeing actually quite high number proportions of, of the population that are being tested symptomatically or who are at a very high risk positive. And so in the healthcare setting, it, it's, not, it's not so much surveillance. Um, so, it, so it's not the appropriate way to answer the question. And until we get a good idea of what this virus is doing, it, we could throw a bunch of numbers around to say how many people really need to be tested. I can pretty confidently say that it's uh, quite a bit more than 100,000 a day. Um, but what that number looks like will depend on just how widely this virus turns out to be transmitting. And we won't necessarily know that without serology or without really well-designed uh, studies of the general population, including many asymptomatics. Or, or just individuals without any symptoms, whether they're infected or not. Okay, the next question. Hi, um, on that question in terms of, you know, we don't know how many people are infected, one to 15%. Um, there's this emerging debate within, between lawmakers and faith communities in terms of allowing faith groups to continue to worship amid the pandemic. It now arrested two pastors, one in Florida and one in Louisiana for continuing to hold large gatherings despite regulations implying otherwise. Um, and then meanwhile, we have these cases like in Sacramento County, California, where a third of the coronavirus cases there are attributable to faith communities, um, and in particular one church, and then North Carolina, that had a similar incident. And of course, in South Korea, you know, the early stages of the outbreak there were attributed to, in many ways, to this one faith community that prompted the government to test everyone in that faith community. But one of the reasons that that's been tricky here in the United States is that some of these faith communities are very cloistered and um, actually are very distrustful of government and are, you know, there's, there's active antagonism between authorities and health officials in trying to get these people tested. So I'm curious, is there concern within the broader um, you know, health community about not only these faith communities continuing to worship them in the pandemic, but also whether or not we could, we could you know, get a, a fair assessment of how many people are infected if they're not reporting back until they show up in the hospital? Yeah, well, that's a, it's a, it's a great question. Certainly, you know, whether it's faith community, faith-based communities or, or otherwise political or, or whoever might be congregating work. Um, these are, these are clear issues. And, you know, the, the hardest thing is it's not just the, the regulations aren't just about protecting those individuals who are there, but every extra person who shows up in the hospital puts everyone else at risk. And in particular, if you're showing up at the hospital, with an infectious disease, it puts everyone else at risk and, re and removes um, needed supplies from other people who also need them for similar reasons. And, and, so, uh, and, and it also puts people at risk because uh, the normal function of the hospital starts to degrade as more and more people get infected. And so, um, and so every person that shows up 
with coronavirus puts the person who was just in a car accident at, at greater risk of not getting the support and help they need in the hospital. So I think that um, we really have to look at these sorts of decisions to, to limit, um, to limit uh, congregations of people not in much more of a public health sense than, than an individual health sense, even um, amongst the groups. Um, and then, uh, and so I, I'm in support of, of, of uh, limiting, limiting those kinds of congregations from happening because the, the ramifications extend well beyond those individuals. Um, Getting at a good sense of who's actually infected when these things happen because they stay away from hospitals, for example, in many ways, unfortunately, that's essentially our policy today regardless. Um, when people are infected, we're pretty much saying and, and hoping that most people, unless they really need to uh, be uh, seek medical care, that they remain at home if they're very mild and, and you know just maybe uh, have mild symptoms and really don't need to go to a physician. We're asking, we're essentially asking people to to weather the storm, and uh, and 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 hope that they don't progress. If they do start to progress at all, then certainly getting medical attention is important. But this is one of the major reasons why, uh, uh, whether it's because people are distrustful of government and 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 sort of. Uh, hospital systems in general, or just because our hospital system is strained, um, we are not getting accurate accurate assessments of the population that's truly infected. We're missing huge huge numbers across the whole populace for various reasons. But the biggest reason is we just don't want people coming in. We don't we don't have enough tests to test everyone who might who thinks they might have a symptom. We also don't have enough material to do that. Like these swabs have become a big problem. And we also don't want people to have to leave their house if they are sick. And so we're kind of stuck in this situation where it's very, very difficult to get a good accurate estimate of who is infected um, regardless of the, of the reason. And that's sort of the policy of today. I think the policy of tomorrow is going to change in particular as we start to see send, send home, um, do it yourself sort of at home kits Maybe you sample yourself and then mail it in, or you or you take a blood prick from your finger and, and mail in a drop of blood. I think we'll start seeing much greater um, ability to to survey the population once we have those in place. We might even have things like drop off boxes where you can drop your your sample in a in a box or something in a plastic bag with a package around it or something along those lines. Um, so so that will change, but I I think that uh, the the problems that you're describing are, are unfortunately consistent regardless of reason. Uh, next, we have a follow-up question. If, we, if the turnaround time for someone to receive a test result is a week to 13 days, is a test still valuable if it's taking that long to come back? Someone can still get COVID during that time. Yeah, this is, this is a huge problem. It's, a, it's an enormous problem. Uh, it's valuable um, to let somebody know that they have been positive. Um, it doesn't have a tremendous amount of value. Um, if it comes back negative, it's, it's really not too valuable. We, we know that there's a lot of people who are negative one day and then turn positive the next. Um, so I would say it's still valuable, but from a diagnostic and, and, a, and the way that these tests are generally being used, which is to diagnose people and then to, to let them know to uh, stay away from other people or to let hospital staff know to gown up in PPE. 
what this is what this long delay is doing from from a lot of the major send out laboratories is really it is limiting the utility of these tests to be able to be used in the most efficient way which is to very quickly be able to say this person you know is not infected with coronavirus and and you can reserve your your personal protective equipment for those patients who are um, and and it's it's very much um, harming our ability as a as a country at the moment to really be able to to take the care that we need and to and to be able to most efficiently preserve the the limited resources we have at the moment in terms of protective gear um, there's labs that are I think that one of the ways to get around this and and the labs are starting to do it is to triage patients and and say these only these individuals will kind of jump the line and these might be individuals for whom there's high suspicion and there's a high amount of PPE being wasted on them if they're if they're negative and so get the get the result back as quickly as possible unfortunately it's pretty difficult to do that type of triaging well it will cause some samples to just keep being you know to to then be delayed longer and longer and 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 it's a it's a real problem that we have found ourselves in some laboratories are working a little bit differently so in, in boston we decided that we didn't we essentially didn't want to go that route and have to rely on on quest and labcore and mayo um, because we presume that these big labs will will likely have the kinds of delays that they now do uh, so we took a slightly different approach and and um, worked with the broad to create a whole different, um, I don't want to say private, but it's essentially a, a, a different high, high throughput uh, testing operation on robots and, and, and everything so that we can more efficiently get samples back to Massachusetts and New England based um, places. Uh, and, and we've been able to keep turnaround times below, uh, certainly below 24 hours and a lot of times for, for some hospitals below eight hours. And that's, um, and that's just the, the, some efficiencies that we've built into it. Um, but the whole reason behind that was to ensure that these hospitals don't have to run into the same issues. Unfortunately, it's, you know, it's uh, um, this problem where the, the, the wealthy and, and high resourced rise up and have better advantages than, than others. And I, you know, it's, it's really hard to know how to equi equitably distribute these types of tests. And right now we're just working with Boston-based hospitals, which of course, uh, I think as the, the world knows, generally tend to be pretty high resourced hospitals in the first place. And um, it leaves small clinics and, and small hospitals um, a little bit out, out to dry. Um, we, do take, we do take tests from anywhere in Massachusetts though. So when we work with the state laboratories to make sure that happens. Um, but for the most part, these, these big backlogs that are happening, they were both expected. I think anyone who wanted to bury their head in their sand and say that this wasn't expected is, is naive because there's just such immense demand um, for both the, the actual reagents and for the, the just getting into the queue in these, in these labs um, that it would be hard for, for the most efficient lab in the world to, to be able to really process these well. Uh, the next question, uh, do we have a full picture of how many people have died from COVID-19? Do we know if there are people who have died from coronavirus without being tested? And if someone, and if someone dies of suspected COVID-19, do they conduct autopsies to rule out that cause of death or is testing limited only to the living? 
So it's variable and it's, it also depends in part on what the resources are. Um, certainly hospitals are attempting to do everything they can to diagnose a death as COVID if there's suspicion. If there's not suspicion, then in general, um, we can't treat every death as though it's suspicious of COVID. Um, but I think overall, relative to our ability to detect cases and, and viral acquisition numbers, which is pretty poor, I think um, our ability to capture a, a large majority of deaths that are occurring due to COVID has been probably, um, has been better than, than our ability to diagnose people in the first place. Um, how many we're actually missing is really hard to know. Um, I've heard many stories so far of, of there being suspicion of a death being due to COVID, but not having tests available and, um, and autopsies being done, potentially assuming that there was COVID uh, and so people gowning up appropriately, but then never having a test being performed on those, on those, um, bodies. And, uh, so we we might be missing a large fraction, but I think that in general the patterns that we're seeing and and the the overwhelming number of deaths that we that that are being recorded, I think that they probably represent the majority of deaths from from COVID, um, and we're probably missing some fraction, but I don't think it's going to be an order of magnitude. It might be, who know? I mean, it could potentially be half. I kind of doubt that. I think probably it's more in the tens of percents. Uh, next question. Uh, thank you, Michael, for doing this press conference. I'm pivoting a little bit to supply chain. So lately there's been a lot of interest in decontaminating and reusing N95 masks. There have been various methods proposed to do this, UV light, hydrogen peroxide, hydrogen peroxide vapor, steam heat in an autoclave, or dry heat in an oven. What are the pluses and minuses of these methods? Is Harvard considering using any of them? And if so, which one? And finally, how much of a dent will this make in the shortage of masks? Yeah, so there's, I think there's, there's a lot of different options um, for decontaminating these masks, at least from the perspective of getting decontaminated for the virus. Um, and you know, the, in some ways, the simplest option would be to take a mask and let it sit out. If you have a, a, a sufficient supply and you could put them on sort of a, a two-week rotation or something. You know, you could just let them sit there, and we know that the virus generally tends to die after 10 days or so, probably earlier, but, but just to be sure. Um, so the, the hospitals around here are certainly considering these types of measures, and we've been discussing different, different approaches, um, things like um, gas decontamination, even things like ozone, for example, could potentially be used, UV light, heat, um, they each have their pluses and minuses. Some of the issue with heat is uh, what will it do both to the fibers but also to the, to the rubber bands that hold these masks on your face tightly. If that starts to get dried out and stretched because of the heat, that could cause problems. Um, and uh, things, like, uh, things like solvents and, and alcohol and, and, and those types of decontaminants, we worry that those would degrade the integrity of the fibers. Um, pretty quickly, and um, and so we we try to stay away from from that type of uh, thing. But um, but they they could potentially work for for a number of reasons. Things like gases, I think, are some of the better options because they they probably could do a good job at decontaminating um, without 
causing much degradation to the fibers and, and the filtration. But, um, but these are, there's a number of groups looking at it. Our infection control group is now just starting to study. And I think there's a group at Stanford who has been really doing a good job at looking at it. I've, it gets a little bit further away from uh, my exact involvement, but, I, um, but I've been on, on a lot of these discussions where, where our infection control units are trying to figure out you know, just what's the best way to, to um, employ these different options. Yeah, can you address uh, how big of a dent will this make in the uh, in the supply problem? I mean, supposing you could find a method that would let you reuse masks five or ten times, um, would that mean you need five or ten times fewer masks? Um, it depends on what cycle they could be in. If you could do that every single night, you could potentially, you know, um, uh, these masks are pretty durable, so if uh, if they if we could find a way to decontaminate them uh, and and get them back into use the next day, for example, but with by the same person, um, they could really become it could be a huge help to the overall supply chain. I think it's one of the the crucial things. The real question is, will other companies get on board to help make the masks um, in a in a more uh, in a greater supply than is currently available? Um, before these types of good uh, uh, infection control and sterilization methods come on board widely. I think it's not going to be every place that, that can do it. Although, I don't know, say something like a microwave actually turned out to work really well and didn't degrade the mask and, and was able to kill off virus. You know, that, that's something that would be very, very available everywhere. And, and um, and so there are certain, I, would, I think that anyone who's working on these problems, the best thing to do is not to, not to look for solutions that could uh, only take place in very specialized hospitals, but really the solutions that will make the greatest dent will be those that can be employed at small clinics, in particular in developing countries, um, where, where a lot of the, so using very, very rudimentary materials, I think would be optimal and that type of thing could make the greatest dent. Um, in a place like the United States, it could be that, you know, in the next couple of weeks, we end up getting millions and millions of extra masks because some, some company starts building them in, in huge numbers. But I do worry that, that many places across the globe won't have the availability of these masks and, and this type of reuse is going to be incredibly important. So I would just push anyone who's really working on it hard not to focus just on what they can do in their high income hospital. Um, but I think it could make a really big difference that this, given the state of things where PPE has become an absolute crucial need, uh, I think it would make a, a really, a very large difference. Quantifying that is difficult. Okay, the next question. Hi, um, thanks again for doing this. It's, it's really helpful. Um, I wanted to ask about nursing homes. In Massachusetts, um, I think the Globe reported last night that more than 80 nursing homes and assisted living facilities have cases here. Um, if your parent were in one of them, would you would you get them out? I mean, is there a way to keep people safe? Are these places just careless, or is it impossible to keep people safe in in, in a group setting like that? Um, the easy answer that I have to that is, if my parent were in a nursing home, I would do everything I could reasonably do to get them out at the moment, um, and. But a lot of people don't have the luxury of being able to do that. And um, although, of course, now that everyone's working from home, it's, uh, it's maybe a little bit easier to, to actually practically do that. 
And I do think that as many people as we can get out of these homes is probably better. Um, the, this, I think that this is an extraordinarily transmissible virus. I think it's more transmissible than, than we recognize. Um, and actually preventing it from spreading within nursing homes is, is an extraordinary feat that um, would require, you know, we still have to have employees going out into the world um, to get to and from work and keeping a, a virus that's potentially very, very transmissible out of, out of any setting like that is, is going to be very difficult. And we're seeing that all over the place. We see it, we can't keep it out of hospitals. We can't keep it out of nursing homes. If we were testing uh, businesses and industry, I think we would find that we can't keep it out of, of those either. Um, so I wouldn't, I would never want to say that they're being careless. I, I can't say that some of them aren't being careless. Um, but I think that the, the transmissibility of the virus just exceeds what we're able to do. And in that sense, taking extreme caution, going into rooms, keeping each individual safe while in those um, settings is absolutely important. But we did see the problems with taking this approach on the cruise ships, for example. And in many ways, there's a lot of analogies to be made between cruise ships and nursing homes. We've seen, of course, Seattle have devastating effects in at least one of their nursing homes um, and others around the country. So it's a real it's a real concern, and I think as much as we could potentially do to get people out of them would be optimal. Um, it's extraordinarily difficult. Some people don't even have families anymore, and um, and so what to do with those individuals is is not well known. But I do think that um, I do think that placing excess resources into nursing homes for surveillance is warranted at the moment. And in a, in, in, in a place like Massachusetts, I think we should probably be considering um, doing pretty massive surveillance and, and every few day swabs of, of employees and maybe pooling those swabs together to, uh, to be able to sample them quickly and look for any positives. And if there's a positive, then you quickly sort of pull those pools apart and look at to find out which person was actually positive and isolate them. But I think that there's sampling procedures we can do that can make this much more efficient and potentially is warranted to really do intense, intense sampling to prevent catastrophes. Next question. Yeah, thanks. I just wanted to ask a question about in terms of trying to understand where the next big hotspots are going to be in the US, which lead indicators are most important to look at and which modeling groups are you kind of looking to, you know, who's got the best projections right now and in, in your opinion? Thanks. Um, I think uh, as far as indicators, if we're just using testing as an indicator, it's very, very difficult because the, the distribution of tests is so haphazard at the moment across the country and who exactly is being tested and how to interpret one, one place that has 20% positive versus a place that has 5% positive. I think it all just comes down to how they're being sampled. Um, certainly the best, some of the best indicators in my mind are simply the demographics and sort of density of populations. We know that cities are, are hit early and hard if you don't take pretty decisive action pretty quickly. Um, and then we also know what I'm particularly concerned about is that is the, we know that comorbidities 
um, really lead to excess uh, deaths um, and much higher rates. And so certainly the Southeast of the United States and much of the Midwest where we, we know that um, areas that have much higher um, problems with cardiovascular risk and diabetes, these are places I think that have potential to be hit very hard, places like Memphis and, and New Orleans, um, Atlanta, to a certain extent. Um, so I think that those are, those are places where, um, where the comorbidities of the populace could potentially lead to significant numbers of excess deaths over what we've seen um, elsewhere, um, including really in, in most countries. We haven't had places that are as unhealthy as big swaths of the United States are um, being hit quite so hard yet, but I think they're just, they're about to, they're, they're, it's, all, it's all coming um, soon. And I think some of the early indicators are certainly upticks. We can try to use testing, and if we had better testing, I would feel more confident And testing is in many ways what, what I focus on. And how to use that epidemiologically um, is also what I focus on, but I, I have little faith in, in the types of tests we're doing now and how it's being reported. We know that it's not really, be, it's not serving as a terrific indicator of, of what's happening at the population level right now. And so in that sense, I think really monitoring um, hospital admissions, uh, unfortunately, it kind of misses the boat. Um, by the time you're seeing hospital admissions, you're at least a couple of weeks behind. Um, but it's, it's what we can look towards for, for more accurate readouts um, of where this is hitting currently and where to really start in reinforcing um, control measures. Um, potentially testing will continue to become more widely available. Of course, we know that it's primarily available on the East and West Coasts and, and places where big academic centers tend to be and, and, uh, um, and that isn't exactly helping the huge portions of the United States to get tests to be widely available. Um, over the next few weeks, I think we'll see testing continue to increase, but again, like we can only scale up the actual instruments so much. So until there's new types of tests, um, we're gonna have trouble doing that at, at great speed. Um, and uh, the groups that I think are doing the best, um, I think that are, that are focusing specifically on the United States. I mean, there's not a lot of groups who are doing, uh, there's a lot of models out there, but I think um, some of the folks here in our groups at Harvard and the Center for Communicable Disease Dynamics, I think, are putting together some um, good models. The Imperial and Oxford groups, I think, do a good job. And Johns Hopkins, some in Seattle. These are sort of the big powerhouse groups of modelers and where, where they end up concentrating. And I think we can look to the models that are being built today to, to understand what's happening, but we also have to be very wary of all of them right now because all of them in some way are based on the data we know. And that from my perspective, I feel um, from wearing not my epidemiologist hat, but wearing my laboratory and, and testing hat, I feel that the data we know from testing anyway is generally flawed. Um, and to the extent that I, I worry that it's largely misleading more than anything else, um, but there's nice study designs and models that are now really leveraging and utilizing things like hospital admissions and excess deaths to understand where the real outbreaks are happening. And, um, and those models, I think, will start to see an increasing number of as people really take heart in the fact that the, that the growth of the epidemic based on test numbers is, is a flawed met metric.
The next question. Hi, sorry about that. Hey, thank you, thank you for doing this. Can you discuss, um, I mean, this is spinning us forward a bit into the future, but can you discuss what level and type of testing and contract tracing would need to be in place before any regions might consider uh, be in a position to consider relaxing any of the shelter-in-place standards? Yes, yeah, I was touching on this a little bit earlier. I think that the very first thing we have to do is just get a first order, sort of order of magnitude understanding of how many people have actually been infected. Um, we really don't know if we've been 10 times off or 100 times off in terms of the cases. Um, personally, I lean more towards the 50 to 100 times off. Um, and that we've actually had much wider spread of this virus than testing and, and then numbers are really giving us at the moment. And that's generally a feature of just extreme limited numbers of tests. Um, so until we really know that, I think we can't, we, we truly can't make any good decisions that are based in, in real data uh, about what kind of contact tracing, what level of effort is going to be needed. And, and it kind of splits in a way, the, the more transmissible this virus is, if today we actually have 10 or 15 million people in the United States infected or who have been infected in the past, uh, that puts us on a very different path than the one that, we, that most presume we're on at the moment. And if that's true, then we, on the one hand, it's much more difficult to contain the virus. Um, but on the other hand, it means that just, it's really just a razor thin slice of infecteds who are, who are resulting in this sort of large number of, of hospital admissions and problems. And this could ultimately shake out to be not as bad of a virus as we are currently thinking, but just the sheer absolute numbers of people getting infected is what's driving the overall hospital admissions and, and the healthcare crisis at the moment. Um, on the other hand, if it's a smaller number of people who are infected, that means it's more virulent. It means we come out of this with less population level immunity, less herd immunity. And it means that we have to do perhaps much more intense contact tracing to ensure that individual level outbreaks or individual outbreaks across the population don't take hold. Uh, and, and essentially it becomes a game of suppressing the virus as much as possible um, until a vaccine comes out or really riding the wave of just having R naught right above one. And that's the whole idea of flattening the curve to, to essentially try to slowly accrue immune people who are less at less risk, so younger individuals in particular. Um, but, both of, but, but those are both to say that just getting an, an actual number of what type of, even what magnitude of response in the future we need to have is going to, is going to fall out of the serological surveillance studies that are going to be coming in the in the next weeks and months. Um, and until we get those, and until we really have a good understanding of just what population proportion has been infected, then then trying to plan exactly what the response in the future, come June or July or August, is going to look like for surveillance is a pretty difficult task. Um, we can look at other countries, and I think given the testing situation in the U.S starting to really focus intensely on what other countries are experiencing can help. Iceland is, is right now doing a really nice job at trying to sample, um, I wouldn't say a random selection of their population, but through volunteer testing, they're sampling people and they're finding as many as 1% of their sort of volunteer um, 
individuals are showing up positive for virus. And, and so overall, when you read the reports, it says, you know, 0.5 to 1%, less than 1% essentially are positive. Um, but that it has to be taken um, very carefully. That doesn't mean that less than 1% of the population has gotten infected. That's, that's on it. That's daily incidence. So if 0.5 or 0.7% of the population has virus in their nose at any given time for even just a, a couple of weeks, that accumulates very quickly and puts us more on the track of like that we have millions and millions of people in the United States infected already. Um, so, and so I think there's some evidence accruing that we might be on that path, but we really, but even those studies have a tremendous amount of bias and we have to do the appropriate um, serological studies and surveys to really understand this. Great, thank you so much. Sure. Next question. Hi. Um, I really appreciate your information here. We were looking specifically at Ohio and Michigan, and the states have you know similar populations and are neighboring, but Michigan's numbers are about four times as many cases and more than four times as many deaths. And we were wondering if you've looked at that at all, or if there was any information that what Ohio did to restrict movement early is really paying off now. Um, I haven't personally looked at that. Um, it's possible. I, I also, I wouldn't want to make too much of a comment on it at the moment until I do look at the data because um, I don't know if that's, um, if those numbers are based in deficiencies in testing or differences in testing and the way that the testing is being performed to look at numbers of cases and deaths and, and positives. Um, I think it would take a little bit more evaluation to, to do a comparative analysis between the two before I would want to make any assumption that it had to do with the, um, the policies that were put in place earlier in one place over the other. Um, they can be, the, the differences in, in the magnitude of testing has led to pretty extraordinary differences in, in what ends up being reported and what's been known. And there's incredible heterogeneity across the states at the moment that needs, I think it from a from an understanding of the virus perspective, it can actually really be utilized to our benefit. The variability is actually can be beneficial to understand what's what works, what doesn't, what testing um, approaches seem to give more or less accurate numbers. Um, but I think before I could really comment on that, I'd have to see the data. Okay, thank you. This concludes the April 3rd press conference.